Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 15, 1 through 20. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father and his mother. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. You may be seated. Good morning. Hope you're doing well. We are continuing in Matthew. Um, We've officially gone over the halfway mark. So chapter-wise, who knows about verses and sermons, but we've officially hit chapter-wise over the first halfway because um, we've completed all 14 chapters now and going into 15. So um, it's a big milestone for us. We're going to keep on going, and uh, I'm going to pray and jump in. So let's pray together. Lord, these conversations that happen in the first 20 verses of chapter 15 are truly amazing. I pray that as we look at it this morning, We don't pass by it quickly. Lord, I pray that as we see these conversations, that we look at our own lives and we can see the invaluable impact of what it would have on our lives. Lord, I pray for this next um, 40, 50 minutes or so as we look at this, that as I talk today, that these words I say would not just be me talking about you. I don't want to just talk about you today. I want to feel these things deeply from my own heart. We all want that, Lord. May what we see in your text penetrate deep into our hearts and cause us to overflow with deep desires for change, deep desires to want to press in deeper to the gospel. I pray that this morning... What we hear this morning from your from your word will cause us to leave in a much different way than what we came in. 
We love you and we praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, title of today's sermon is A Radical Change of Heart. A Radical Change of Heart. And you're going to see here three different conversations. This is not the outline, so don't write this down. I just want you to know. You're going to see three different conversations today in this first 20 verses of chapter 15. The first nine verses is a conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. The second conversation. bit of conversation is just going to be verses 10 and 11 where Jesus talks to the whole crowd. And then after that in 12 through 20 is the third conversation where Jesus just talks to the disciples. That's not the, that's not the outline, but that's basically the conversations that are happening. Um, but as we're going through this, these three different conversations, I'm hoping that we're all going to, when we see it, things are going to jump out to us and we're going to see how a radical change of heart is what's being talked about. And when I say radical change of heart, I don't mean a self-wrought Radical change of heart. I don't mean that you try harder and that you just do better. What we're talking about is a spirit, a Holy Spirit wrought change of heart that happens in your life. And through these first 20 verses, we're going to see how Jesus prescribes some of these things happening. We, we can't cause the Holy Spirit to make these things happen in our lives, but we can certainly pray for and we can certainly um, desire these things. And so as we're seeing this deep, radical change of heart happening that Jesus is talking about. I'm hoping that um, we'll take a a self-pause, if you will, and look at our own hearts and start asking these kind of questions about ourselves. And maybe you're going through this right now and maybe you're not. But as you're going through life, do you ever kind of stop and wonder, what is going on with my life spiritually? It's just been far too long since I have been at a place where I really feel like things are going well with Christ. Do you ever stop and look back over a period of time in your life, a week, a month, a half a year, and just crave a deeper walk with God than what you don't have? Have you ever go through that period of time and just say, I don't know what to do. I look back over this last six months, this last three months, this last three years, and I, I just don't even know what to do. I'm not where I want to be spiritually. I want to have this radical change of heart that seems to be pervasive coming from the scriptures, but, but I don't have it. I don't know what's going on. Do you ever feel like you're just going through the motions spiritually, but you can't just put your finger on why it feels like you're just going through the motions? We're going to see four different things today that I'm hoping will help you and me address that if that's what's going on in your life. James Boyce in this first 20 verses, he says of Jesus that nothing Jesus ever said was as was as was ever said as radical as what he told the Pharisees in these first 15 verses. Nothing that Jesus ever and he said some pretty radical things to them later on in this book. And he says that nothing that was ever said of Jesus was as more radical in these 15 verses. I mean, first 20 verses of chapter 15. Now, we read it. We just read it and we could think, how is that possible? We just read it. It didn't seem like it was very radical. Some of the things he said a couple of reasons why. Number one, um, we're pretty far removed from this. This happened 2,000 years ago. And we aren't very well acquainted with Pharisees and what was going on in, in you know, Judaism 2,000 years ago. We're pretty far removed. But even more so, this is what I think is pretty important. We're far more like the Pharisees than we think. And it's hard for us to absorb the meaning of it. And I think that if we can realize that, then we can start 
addressing those big picture questions of why is it that I don't have this radical change of heart that I want. I deeply desire. I look back over the last six months, six years, whatever time period in your life where you know that you were clicking at one point and now you're just going through the motions. And so I want to help us look at those things today and not just you, but me. Let us see some things that can be addressed in our life and hopefully we can we can start doing some real repentance and some still work. Now, there is why would why would why would James Boyce say that this is pretty radical? Let's let's get a sense of why he would say something like that. Okay, now remember, um, here's the setting, chapter fourteen, and really, even back further, Jesus is looking for rest. All he wants to do is rest because he's been working so hard at healing so many people over and over, over and over. Jesus Christ, God, the God man, is walking around and as sick people are coming with him, he's interacting with people that are the outcasts of society. He's dead tired and all he wants to do is rest. He goes from one side of the eastern sea, the Sea of Galilee. People follow him around. He gets on that goes to the western side of Gesineret, but people are following him around all the time. He walks on water. He's doing miracles. People are amazed by his power. They're being healed by their infirmities. He's touching. People are being healed just by touching his shirt. He's making food come out of nowhere. He feeds 15,000 people. He's claiming to be deity. He's causing storms to stop. He's causing all these things. Meanwhile, the Pharisees and the scribes hear about this and they say, oh, this is crazy. We can't have this happening. We need to deploy our very best. Jerusalem gets word, you know, the, the centerpiece of religion. Jerusalem gets word and they say, this is crazy. This man, Jesus, is doing all kinds of things. We got to deploy the best. We got to get over there and survey the situation and talk to him and ask him what's going on. And they come up to him. This is the absurdity of all of it. And they come up to him and the scribes and the Pharisees say, wait a minute, we've heard about those amazing things, but all of that, that can't be of God because your disciples, they don't wash their hands before they eat. I mean, we can stop and just think about that and say, that's absurd. That's absurd. You want to talk about hand washing and he's doing these crazy things. These amazing things. We're deploying our best people. Get the best. Malcolm and Frederick, y'all get over there. They're not washing their hands. And so we see here that the big guns are coming. And Jesus is not going to have anything to do with this absurdity. Anything to do with it. You can see it. Now the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. And they say to him in verse 2. Why do your disciples. They always want to talk about his disciples and not him. Because he's Jesus. Right? Why do your disciples break? They did that whenever they were eating the food. Anyway, uh, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. Why? Why do they do that? Look, look at verse two. They break the tradition of the elders. They break the tradition of the hel- elders. Jesus is not going to have anything to do with this. Nothing. He doesn't answer their question. He goes right back with a question to them. And he's going to try to show them the absurdity of their point because they're taking the tradition of elders and equating it with the Old Testament law and commands of God. They're saying elders seem to be more important than God. Tradition seems to be more important than commands. And Jesus, I mean, this is why Boyce says this is some of the most radical things. He is very, very direct with them. And he says, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded Honor your father and mother. That's from that's from the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. And he also commands in Exodus 21, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, 
So here's their little tradition how, and how they break those two commands in Exodus 20 and Exodus 21. The, the tradition of the elders, they say this thing over here. But you say, if anyone tells his father or, or mother, what would you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his fa- father or mother. Basically, what's going on right there, that's, that's pretty far removed from us. But what's going on is if sons and daughters were responsible for taking care of their elderly parents and they had a sum of money to do that, what they could do is instead of saying, we want to take care of you with this sum of money we had, we can just say the word Corbin, which just means this is, this is what they say in Mark seven eleven. Um, we can just take that money and say Corbin, which means this money's for God, which means if we say that, we don't have to take care of you. We can just take that money and we can say, since it's, it's not for you, it's for the Lord. But the tricky thing is... Um, there was no real follow-up to make sure that it was given to the Lord. And who knows when it's actually going to be given to the Lord. And they just would keep it. But it doesn't matter anyway because they're not fulfilling their God-given command in Exodus 20 and Exodus 21, which is to take care of their father and mother and to not revile their father and mother. So Jesus pinpointing on this, this, uh, this problem. Now, we don't need to get bogged down in the detail of taking care of father and mother because that's not really the point, the big main point that we're trying to see here. And he said, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the words of God. You have made void the words of God. Jesus is radically in their face telling them. You're making void the word of God. You're placing tradition over commandment. So here's the first thing I want us to see. If we want to have what's known as a radical change of heart in our life. We don't need to be like the Pharisees here. And place the word of God in low places. We don't need to, in our actions, make void the word of God. And remember, I'm talking about radical change. I'm defining this of saying that it needs to be Holy Spirit wrought, not self wrought. So here's the first thing about the radical change of heart. A radical change of heart must have a high view of Scripture. It must have a high view of Scripture. These particular Pharisees and scribes did not have a high view of Scripture. What we're told here, and we don't need to get down in the details of the, of the honoring father and mother. The big point is, Jesus is saying, you're elevating tradition over the Word of God. What we can learn is, we need to have a radical change of heart just like these Pharisees. We need to not make void the Word of God in our life. How is it that you or I can make void the word of God in our life? We're probably not going to do it like the Pharisees. I've, I've never heard one of y'all say Corbin. I don't think any of you are concerned about that. You probably don't even have money to take care of your parents. So here's the point that we need to think about. Um, and, and let me just take one little thing here. Uh, I know that when we get into the, the idea of washing their hands, that's kind of a, uh, a thing that we realize. It, it, that's not about hygiene. That's just about uh, this extra law that the Pharisees had tacked on to say, well, you should have clean hands and clean hands represents you being clean. And so you should you should do that. That's why that's what's wrong with the disciples. And it's also not more Christ like to eat with dirty hands. You should still you should still eat, you know, wash your hands before you eat. But that's all kind of sidestep. But anyway, back to the point. The point is that we must have a high view of the scriptures. In other words, we should in our own lives exalt the scriptures in our daily life. Put in practice an actual exaltation of the scriptures. Now, this is tricky. 
This is really tricky because I can say that to you. And if you have been in church forever, you can absolutely agree with me and say, that's exactly right. I want to exalt the scriptures. And so what I'm going to do to say that I exalt the scriptures, Fudd, is I'm going to have a mental agreement with you that the scriptures are the word of God and that I should exalt them. And that's not necessarily what I mean. I mean, instead of just saying you have a mental agreement with me that you should exalt the scriptures, I mean, you should have a concerted effort a daily concerted effort to put into practice the exaltation of the scriptures. There's just a couple examples that I can think of here. I've got four that I jotted down. And what the exaltation of scriptures might look like in your life could change from from person to person. But don't just fool yourself in thinking that if you're going to have a radical change of heart and have a high view of scriptures, that you're just going to have a a belief system that agrees with me that the, that the Bible is the word of God and you just say yes to that, okay? You must put into practice a concerted effort. First is memorizing the word. Psalm 119 over and over and over shows us the importance of this. And so if you're going to truly have a radical heart change where you're going to exalt the word of God in your life, exalt the scriptures, you must do the things that it says to do that. You must have an ongoing effort of memorizing the scriptures. I'm not saying that saves you. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm saying in order to do that, in order to start looking back at the last part of your life and say, what's going on in here? Why is it such a mess? One of the things that we can do that the Lord has clearly told us from his scriptures out of one out of these four is memorize the word of God. Another one is, is for husbands. And I had two conversations this past week that that, that said this with, with people in the church. Two conversations. Husbands, you should wash your wife in the water of the word. Ephesians 5. There should be a concerted effort that you are continually reading the scriptures over your wife. Washing her in the water of the word. That she's being sanctified by you. Not just by you, but one of the parts is by you reading the scriptures. The Holy Spirit's using that to sanctify her. This is another way you can clearly show that there's a concerted effort in your life to exalt the scriptures in your life. Another, pl- another way that you can do this is that you would just read the word daily. If you don't read the word daily in your life, you, you may not have a wife or you may not have kids. Um, and you might be really bad at memorizing. But one of the ways that you can exalt the scriptures in your life absolutely is read the scriptures daily. You want to know why you don't have a radical heart change is because you don't read the word. If you don't read the word, you are just what he says in the end of verse six. You are making void the word of God. You wouldn't say that. You wouldn't you wouldn't say, you know what? I'm going to try to make void the word of God today. You wouldn't set out to do that. But if you have an ongoing time where you're not reading the word and you're you're wondering what's going on in your life, what you've done is you've made void the word of God. Another thing, obviously, that you can do to show that you want to exalt the scriptures in your life, that you want to say, I'm going to make a concerted effort to have a radical heart change centered around the word is that you can have family devotions with your with your with your children. It's so important that you help them see. Just how amazing the word of God is in your family and in your life. And so if you have kids, you must do this. These are just a few ways that we can do this. This is just a few ways. Now, um, Jesus moves on here, and he's kind of finished that, that, uh, that first teaching section with, 
with the Pharisees and the scribes, which are a little bit of a different kind of people. We don't have time to jump into the differences between those two, but he addresses that first place. And this is all going around the heart. We're going to keep seeing that, how the entire verses, first 20 verses of Matthew 15 are all about our heart. But the first thing that we need to see is that a radical heart change must have a high view of Scripture. Now, he's going to even make the conversation even more sharp in verse 7. There's a, there's a bit of a, of, a, of a tenseness that even starts happening. He's very direct with them in that question. Doesn't answer them. It just goes back to a question and then addresses what's one of the worst things that's going on in their life. Um, that they elevate elders and tradition over God himself and the commands of God. And then in verse 7, he looks at them and he tells them, You hypocrites. He's going to call them hypocrites many more times in the book of Matthew. But this is the first time he addresses them as hypocrites um, that's recorded. And he calls them this for, for two reasons. Your ESV study Bible says this. He calls them hypocrites for two reasons. Because their actions are completely external. They're not from their hearts. They're not internal. And what they're teaching is not from God, but just mere tradition. He just, he just addressed that in the first six verses. You elevate elders and traditions over God and his commands. And so... He's saying that you're hypocrites because your actions are external and all you are is talking about the extra laws that you make and pressing that upon the people. Now, he says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said. (laughs) Now, this is pretty amazing. These guys knew the book of Isaiah. And this was actually talking about those particular Israelites at that particular time whose hearts were far from God. And Jesus looks into the Old Testament scriptures with the Pharisees and scribes who are well acquainted and points out this verse in Isaiah and said, you know, the Israelites and you know how Isaiah talked about them. You're just like them. As a matter of fact, he even says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said he calls us a prophecy of them and he tells them. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship. This word vain is huge. Um, This is emptiness. This is complete pointless. He's saying your worship of God is absolutely vain. It's empty. It is pointless. It is meaningless. This lands pretty strong on them because they did not at all think that. They would not ever say that that would be the case of their worship. They thought it was the best worship that could be offered. They always went above and beyond in the way that they would try to do things. And he looks at them and he calls them hypocrites. And he says, Isaiah prophesies of them, these these Pharisees at the time. And he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Holding high tradition over commands. And so the second thing I want you to see here is this. If we feel like in our life that we need to have a definite radical heart change that's wrought by the Holy Spirit, we must realize that it must be wrought with a high view of authentic worship. Not vain worship, not lip service, but authentic worship. It it must not be characterized by outward performance, but it must be characterized by an internal heart change. Spurgeon says this, we must worship the true God in the way of his own appointing, or we don't worship him at all. They were worshiping with external measures, and this is not how God is worshipped. He's worshipped within the heart. And so Jesus calls them hypocrites, and he says, your heart's far from me. You're fulfilling the prophet Isaiah. This is a very bold accusation from Jesus onto these people. Carson, D.A. Carson says, they had displaced the true religion of the heart with a religion of form. 
And everything that they do is empty and everything they do is pointless. In other words, he looks at him and he says, you know what? You can talk about God all the time. You can talk about how much he means to you. You can talk about how devoted you are to him. But your heart can also be very far away from him and all your God talk. Because everything's external and nothing's going on in the heart. In vain are you worshiping. And so this is actually such an important point that Jesus makes in verse 7 and 8. After he says this in verse 9 and 10, he says, and he called the people. He's making this point to the Pharisees and he's, he's kind of in his humanity slash deity thinking, this is pretty important. Everybody come over here. I want to talk to everybody. You Pharisees, you scribes, you stay put. Everybody come over here. This is really huge. I want to make a point really fast. Everybody gather around. And he says, hear and understand. Now, Peter, in verse 15, is going to say that this is a parable that says that Jesus says for us in verse 11. It doesn't seem like a parable. And we know that as we studied the parables, parables are supposed to be um, only to be heard by those that are being called in. But those that Jesus doesn't want to hear is kind of being, you know, kept from them hearing. But Jesus is not wanting anybody to to miss the point. That's why he looks at him. He says, hear and understand. He wants everybody to understand this. In verse 11, it says, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. You're all riled up, Pharisees, because they don't wash their hands and they have dirty bread when they eat and it goes down in here. And you're all concerned about what's coming in physically, the dirty bread because of their dirty hands because they don't wash them. But that's not what I care about. What goes in physically is not what's the big deal to Christ. What comes out spiritually of the mouth what comes out of our heart, which in the, this particular time was the center of the soul. They believed the heart was the center of the soul. That's what's most important. So he doesn't want them to miss that. And this is what we're talking about worship. He calls them all in. He doesn't want them to miss this. He's not trying to be cryptic. He doesn't want to be understood. I want you to understand that your worship is what matters. Whenever you don't think about that, the fact that your center, your soul, that what comes out is from your heart. And that's the authentic worship. If you're just doing external actions, you're missing it all. And so he's saying... To us today, when we come to worship or whenever we go out to live lifestyles of worship, he's warning us to think about the fact that if we want to have, number two, a radical heart, a radical change of heart, it must be wrought with a high view of authentic worship, not fake. This means that when we come in here to worship, when we go out, we don't just go through worship motions. We don't just read words on a screen. We don't just, as we go out and do things, just do them because we're, we're supposed to. In a real sense, if we, don't, if, we don't, if we do that, then we're just worshiping in vain. It's just pointless and empty. But in a real sense, when we come in here to worship what Christ wants, or when we go out and do lifestyle worship, in a real sense, He wants us to feel, feel spiritual affections for Jesus. Real spiritual affections. Have real emotions kind of Fall into our hearts. Have real brokenness for sin happen in our lives. Have real gratitude for the forgiveness of sin. He doesn't want us to just... And this is, this is something that's kind of a subjective thing. How do I do that? But it's based on some of these other things we're talking about. If there's no ongoing high view of Scripture, or exaltation of the Scripture, where you're really making a concerted effort, then you're certainly not going to feel that. If there's no continual prayer life where you're saying, Lord, fill me with the Spirit today. I want to live a life that exalts you. I want to live a life that is 
so grateful for the gospel. I want to feel real worship. I want to have spiritual affections in a very real sense. Be broken over my sin. Have gratitude for this forgiveness. He doesn't want us to just have vain worship. And if we do, then we honor Christ. If we have vain worship, we honor Christ with our lips. But that's it. Not with our hearts. J.C. Ryle, talking about this sense of authentic worship, says, let it be a settled resolution within us that in all our religion, and this isn't saying like the religion in 2012, but 100 years ago, in in a real sense, in our our followings of Christ, real Christian devotion, let it be settled resolution with all of our real Christian devotion that the state of our hearts shall be the main thing. The state of our hearts shall be the main thing. So the first two things that we've seen for this Need of a real radical change of heart is that we have it centered around the word of God and we have it centered around authentic worship. The second, the third thing is this. And this is this is kind of almost silly. This is almost silly. It's later on that day. It says then in verse 12. But um, this is really a transition time for a later point in the day. The disciples is funny as they are. They come up to uh, Jesus and they say the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? (laughs) I mean, you can just feel like Jesus is saying, yeah, I I, I know. (laughs) That's kind of the point. I mean, that's really, that's like what I've been doing the whole time here is just offending them left and right. I'm well aware that I've been offending them. (laughs) Um, That's kind of the point of what I'm trying to do. And our our first, we're kind of amused at that notion. And our first thought is when they're, uh, the Pharisees are offended is, well, who cares? You know, we know who they are. I don't really care about them. Um, But the disciples seem to have some sense of genuine care about what the Pharisees think. And that's because they held the Pharisees in some high regard because all of society held, held the Pharisees in some kind of high regard because everybody thought the scribes and Pharisees were kind of the religious elite. Everybody thinks those guys got it all together. And so they, they really kind of believed this. And so that whenever they were offended, the disciples are trying to put all this together. Um, it also shows that the Pharisees did understand the parable, if you will, of verse 11, because they were offended, although the disciples did not understand, um, which is why Jesus kind of looks at them uh, in verse 16 when they say explain the parable and he's like are you still without understanding he's kind of like how is it that you don't understand the pharisees understood it and you don't but all right and it explains it to him but um what i want to look at here in verse 12 is this idea that there is a clear understanding from the pharisees of what jesus is trying to say you're so you're so kind of like captivated by these external things my hands were dirty when i ate Instead of thinking about the things that go in physically, you should be thinking about the things that come out spiritually. You're so captivated. And whenever I address that to you, Pharisees, all you did was get offended. That's all you did. You got offended. Here's the third thing I want you to see about a radical change of heart. It's shown with ongoing repentance. We we don't take offense at sin being pointed out in our life. Oh, how pride will devastate someone here if they don't like for their sin to be revealed and exposed. Pride will absolutely kill you if you don't like for your sin to be revealed and exposed. When your sin is revealed, we got to be real. This is really important. I think it's uh, there's a book 
about marriage um, when sinners say I do. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but when he's writing in there, he says when spouses are living, they can't say to the other one, you made me sin. (laughs) That's not actually what happens. What happens is whenever you sin against your spouse, you already are a sinner and sin is being revealed to you. They didn't make you sin. You're already a sinner. And it's it's just being revealed to you that you are a sinner. And so that's what's going on here is that whenever Jesus addresses it or someone helps you see that you're a sinner, what's happening is that the fact that you are a sinner is being revealed to you. And the right response to that is not opposition and offense. How dare you point out my sin? How dare you show me just how sinful I am? We don't want to act like this. If we want to have a radical heart change, a spirit wrought, a Holy Spirit wrought heart change, then what we would want to have when someone points out our sin, we don't want it to be hard here. We want to have a spirit of ongoing repentance. Now, don't miss this, okay? Because this ongoing repentance I'm talking about is not salvific. It's not going to save you. If you have been saved, if you have put your faith in Christ, first and foremost, as a, as a, on, as a justified sinner, Lord, I need your forgiveness. I, I believe that I'm a sinner and I want to repent of that sin. You're saved. And that doesn't change. And that what I'm talking about is after that, this ongoing repentance that happens. And this doesn't save you. This gives evidence that you are saved, if you will. It's that process of becoming more and more Christ-like for the rest of your life. But Martin Luther said all of the Christian life is one of repentance. And so this repentance I'm talking about is not a, a final decisive for justification sense. It's an ongoing repentance. You're still going to see sin happening in your life. This is the experience of Paul in Romans 7. You're going to keep see, seeing sin happen in your life. And when it does, don't be prideful and rebel against it and get mad and Throw a spiritual temper tantrum at the person that pointed it out. But instead, have a heart not like the Pharisees that get offended, but instead that wants to say, that's right, that's a real sin. And I want to repent of it continually and continually become more Christ-like. This is huge. I think this is absolutely huge in a Christian's life. If they want to continually have this radical spirit, Holy Spirit wrought heart change for Christ, that whenever they see sin... They continually repent of it. And this is not easy. I mean, I'm the biggest sinner I know. All right. And so in my house, there is there are many, 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 many times per week where my wife lovingly awesome shows me, helps me see ongoing sin in my life. And a large majority of the time I want to act like the Pharisee. (laughs) That's not true. I want to kind of defend it. But if I really stop and I just take a a spiritual time out and say, you know what, that's absolutely true. We all need to think about that and say, am I am I being prideful here? Is this absolutely true? And I need to repent of it. It's not it's not easy. I don't like it at all. It's not something where I just come up and say, Christy, could you point out more sin in my life? That's just so fun for me. Um, It's but it's true. We need to stop and say there are absolutely definite places that I can keep repenting of. And if I do then I'm going to see a pattern of radical heart change that's going to go back to point number two, finding myself easier to worship, easier to engage, easier to be more great, grateful for the fact that God saved me because I'm finding myself more broken for the sin that I'm, I've already been saved for. So that's the third thing. A radical change of heart must be shown with ongoing repentance, ongoing repentance. Did you know, verse 12, did you know that you offended those Pharisees? Um, 
And he said, he answered. And what he's going to do here is he's going to give us two word pictures about, about the Pharisees. And he's going to explain to them, explain to the, to the disciples what's the deal with these legalistic Pharisees um, and why they were offended. He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. So he's talking about the Pharisees here and he's using two word pictures as he's doing it. The first um, is the plant. And this is <clears throat> from touching into some of the Old Testament scriptures. We have Psalm 1-3 where it talks about a tree that's planted by waters that grows and flourishes. And there's another place in Isaiah 20, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 60-21 where uh, the people of Israel were planted by God. And so the people of these Pharisees, these religious time in Judaism, truly believed, they honestly believed in their heart that they were absolutely planted by God, like Psalm 1-3, like Isaiah 60-21, that they were planted by the hands of God. And Jesus addresses that right here. And he says, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. In other words, you think, Pharisees, that you were planted by God the Father. But we already know from Matthew 13, 25, you were planted like Darnell by Satan. And you are not planted by the Heavenly Father. That's the first thing that he tells them. Um, that they are, this is a shocking teaching, by the way, um, later on that, that he tells the, the disciples about the Pharisees. And then he says to the disciples right here in verse 14, let them alone. Let them alone. Now, let me be really careful here because we read that and we can we can miss we can mistake what's going on here. This is a command from Jesus to his disciples about the Pharisees 2000 years ago, telling the Pharisee, telling the disciples to leave the Pharisees alone. This is not a command to you today to leave legalists alone. Not at all. This is a direct command to the disciples, to the Pharisees. So we don't need to. Act like that's a command for us. This is not telling us to leave legalists alone. As a matter of fact, I want to tell you, you go love those legalists. This is the South and they're everywhere. You go love those legalists and you tell them the gospel. You tell them over and over and over what Christ has done and that it doesn't depend on what they do. We don't know how many times it'll take, but don't think they're just Pharisees. I'm going to let them alone. Because they are so in a works-based thing. I got to do, I got to do, I got to do. You just keep telling them. It's not based on that. It's based on what's been done. You love those legalists with all your heart. So, that's the first picture is the plant. And then the second thing he tells them. They are blind guides. And if, they, if, they, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Now, Romans 2.19, as Paul's writing his huge systematic theology. And one little particular kind of side note in Romans 2.19 He's talking about the Pharisees and he, what he says in Romans 2, I can't remember it exactly, but the gist of what he's saying is that the Pharisees called themselves. This is, what they called was a guide to the blind. This is Paul's writing to them and he says, you kind of call yourself a guide to the blind. Now, this was just a, a well-known thing back then, 2000 years ago, that they all kind of knew the Pharisees think of themselves as guides to the blind. So Jesus takes that little idea that they all believe that they were guides to the blind. And he tells them, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they'll both fall into it. This is basically, we're going to go on, on, a, on a hike. We're all going to go on a big hike, okay? Over at, you know, the hiking center in the mountains, whatever. And so when we go there, um, we go there and our guide, here's your guide, you know, Malcolm. Malcolm, take me around. Here's the deal though. Malcolm's completely blind. 
And so he's going to take us on this hike. Not only that, you're blind too. <laughs> How well do you think this, guy, this hike's going to go? Not very fun. I don't think it's, I don't want to go with Malcolm. I don't want him to take me anywhere. And so this is the image that he's pointing out. And he's saying that he's pronouncing these people, not the guides of the blind, but blind guides of the blind. And it's because they have such a misunderstanding of the scriptures. And he's telling them that all they do is lead their followers into a pit. This pit is completely representative of hell. And so the, to sum up these two big images about the plant and the pit, what he's saying is Jesus is in essence saying these Pharisees are planted by Satan. They do the work of Satan. And whenever they do that, they take people down to hell and they will be destroyed in the last judgment. This is what he tells the disciples. This is pretty strong language. And so obviously he's wanting the disciples to, to not such a have a high view of these of these Pharisees and, and to stay away from them, to stay completely away from them. Now, let's keep going. Um, and we're going to see here, after he says that, verse 15, Peter says to him, will you please explain this parable? We don't get it. And so Jesus is still a little bit frustrated. Are you still without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into the mouth, passes into the stomach, and is expelled? So Jesus is, again, trying to reiterate what he had said back in verse 11. Pretty graphic, but he's telling us, we all know the science, I guess, behind it. We eat food, it comes down. And actually, you should have a little note there. This is just a, a fun side note. Um, but in, right there, in, it says, and is expelled, verse 1. It says, into the latrine. This is literally expelled into the toilet. So the Greek word for toilet is aphrodrona. So start calling your, your toilet at home aphrodrona. But he says, and uh, verse 17, do not know whatever goes into the mouth, passes into the stomach, and is expelled into the latrine, into the, to- the toilet. And so he's trying to explain this idea of you, you're focusing, these Pharisees focus on this, what we think is dirty and going down. And then in verse 18, he says this. In verse 18, he says, there's confusion because you're concentrating on that physical what's going down. But here it is. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a per- person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a person. It does not defile a person. So he's contrasting for us religion and the gospel. It's basically what he's saying. He says the first religion, it focuses on rules. It follows on, focuses on law, has nothing to do with the heart. And the Lord says that if you follow rules, the ex, these external things, that you're worshiping in vain, and these people don't worship Jesus. But the gospel, it focuses on the heart. It focuses on following Jesus. It has everything to do with the heart. And this worship is clearly acceptable to God. This is what the gospel is. One finds its roots in performance and what I can do. The other finds its roots in what in Jesus' performance and what he has done. One is man-centered and the other is God-centered. That's the, the contrast that he shows for us here. And so we get into that. And after he explains that in verse 18 and 19... The, the contrast of legalism and religion versus the gospel and following Christ. We get into verse 19 and ah, finally, for all of us, application time, right? Application time, a, a list. Oh, we love the list. And then he says it right there in 19. For out of the heart come. And here's finally, uh, finally, a, a, a to-do list. All right. Well, this doesn't seem like a good to-do list. Um, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. Okay, I know what I'll do. I'm just going to do the opposite of the list. Finally, Jesus got to the point in verse 19, the list. Mm, I need that list. But here's the thing. 
Is that the point? Is the list the point? After he's addressed everybody about external and and talking about the heart, is he really driving us to a list and just do the opposite of the list? The very needed, very helpful, if done the wrong way, creates a legalist list. What do we do and how do we address this? Is it just do the opposite here? This is so important. You must not miss this. The point of this list is not for you to do the opposite of the list. What he's wanting you to see is this. Here it is. You are your heart out of the heart comes every single one of you. What he's wanting to address is this. You are at your heart a murderer. You are at your heart an adulterer. You are at your heart sexually immoral. You are at your heart a thief. You are at your heart a liar. That's what the list is for, not for you to do the opposite, but instead to realize that you are every single one of these things. This is what he told us in the Sermon on the Mount. You are every single one of those things. And you don't need to do a list. You need to acknowledge that's who you are and say, I need a new heart. That's who I am. And I can't change by myself. The list is not there to do the opposite. It's to drive us to our knees and say, I need a new heart. This is what my heart does by itself. You want to talk about hand washing. Hand washing. The problem is you need a new heart. There's such deeper things going on here. And these legalists want to talk about washing their hands. You want to talk about hands? This, your hands cause you to be a murderer. Your hands cause you to be an adulterer. Your hands cause you to be sexually immoral and a thief and a liar. But hand washer, he says, but to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. The issue is not hand washing. You need a new heart. So here's the fourth amazing thing about the radical change that we're asking for. It's all appropriated. It's all in. It's all found in the gospel. The gospel Gives you a new heart. That's radical. This list is for us to say. I'm not here to do the opposite. I'm here to realize that's who I am. And plead for a new heart. To take out the heart of stone. And put in the heart of flesh. To take out the heart of stone that doesn't feel brokenness. And to put in the heart of flesh that feels brokenness. To take out the heart of stone that doesn't feel gratitude for salvation. And put in the heart of flesh that does feel gratitude for salvation. I need a new heart. This is what defiles a person. If you don't have a new heart. Psalm 24 says this. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has a clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what's false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from, righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. D.A. Carson says, what concerned Jesus most was to see people transform and their hearts renewed. For struggling. If you're struggling. And you don't know why you don't have this Holy Spirit wrought radical heart change. It's perhaps you don't have a new heart. J.C. Ryle. This is an amazing quote. He 
kind of captures for us the entirety of scriptures and how it deals with the heart. This is what he says. What is the first thing we need in order to be a Christian? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring to him? A broken and contrite heart. What is true circumcision? Circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? To obey from the heart. What is saving faith? To believe with the heart. Where ought Christians to dwell? Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts by faith. What is the chief request that wisdom asks of everyone? My child, give me your heart. This is what Christ is saying. My child, give me your heart. And then to see what he does in your life. See the radical change that happens. The Holy Spirit wrought happenings that happen in your life. I'm going to pray and we're going to go into a time of worship. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper and I'll come out for more instruction. But let's stand and just proclaim out to Christ all the worship he is due because of what he has done in our life. Those who are believers, let's stand and pray. Lord, many times we don't feel the weight of glory of the fact that we have been given new hearts. You want our heart. You want to take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. And so, Lord, I pray for us all that have been regenerated, that have put our faith in Christ, that we would in our lives elevate the scriptures, elevate authentic worship in our life, that, God, we would be transformed and amazed by this amazing gospel that you have saved us with. And that whenever we see sin in our life, that we would not be offended like the Pharisees, but we would have a life characterized by ongoing repentance. Be with us now as we respond in worship to this true, great news that Jesus Christ has come and died on the cross for our place, in our place. And that by faith we have received complete righteousness and we walk in forgiveness. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.